Welcome back to another episode of the Insurance versus History podcast, where we examine how insurance changed history, and sometimes how it failed to change history, even when it really, really tried. Once again, I'm Meredith, your host, and I have both a bachelor's and a master's degree in history, and for almost 20 years, I worked in the insurance industry, underwriting liability exposures for everything from paranormal investigators to the world's top 500 companies. You want to know how insurance works? History can help. We'll learn a little history and a little insurance, but I promise to make both interesting. Before we get into the podcast, though, can I ask a favor? I'm so grateful and happy that all of you have listened in on my podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. I'm having a great time. If you're listening to me on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review my pod so more people will find it. And if you think someone else would enjoy listening, let them know about the pod as well. I appreciate it. Thanks again for all your support. It really means the world to me. But back to the pod. I knew I wanted to do an episode about 9-11, And I knew that there were a lot of insurance-related topics to talk about. But as I started to get into the research for an episode about 9-11, I realized there was just simply too much to cover in one episode alone. So I've limited my discussion today to the legal fight surrounding the property insurance claim on the collapse of the Twin Towers. I will definitely be coming back in another episode to discuss some other issues and history around 9-11. But the history I'm going to discuss today deserved a deep dive and its own episode. As everyone listening is aware, on 9-11-2001, a group called Al-Qaeda launched a coordinated terror attack on U.S. soil by hijacking four commercial passenger planes. One plane hit the Pentagon. One plane was supposed to hit a government building in D.C., but was diverted to a field in Pennsylvania after passengers tried to fight off the hijackers. And two planes headed into New York City, where they rammed into the two buildings most Americans refer to as the World Trade Center. For the purposes of the discussion today, I will be referring to them as Building 1 and Building 2, the two buildings that make up the Twin Towers. There are actually many buildings on the World Trade Center site, and while you can also refer to them as One World Trade Center and Two World Trade Center, that's kind of wordy to say over and over again. Within two hours after the terrorist attacks on 9-11, both Building 1 and Building 2 had collapsed. I remember this day very well. I didn't know that I would be working in the insurance industry by the end of that year. I was working one of those jobs you get after college to pay the bills when 9-11 happened. I came into work, and everyone was gathered in the conference room watching the television, which was very atypical. I watched as Building 1 billowed smoke into the air, And then, as a plane crashed into Building 2, the entire office stood and watched the TV in that room for more than an hour as both buildings collapsed. Then, the head of the company ordered us to get back to work. You won't be surprised to know not much work got done that day. 9-11 was traumatizing for me and for many other people. I can't watch replay footage of it. I don't ever need to see what I saw that day again. If you were watching too, you remember. And for the insurance industry, the losses were deeply personal. Over 500 people who were employed in the industry died that day. 
Over the years, I have talked to so many people in insurance who knew someone well that had died or were there and survived, or people who were supposed to be there that day but for some reason weren't there, just a lucky break. And many people who worked nearby and well remember how terrifying it was to be in the area in and around the World Trade Center complex. And through all that grief that day was the knowledge that insurance was going to respond and rebuild. That insurance was going to be responsible for helping New York City get through the crisis. We were down, but not out. But it's never that simple, as you've probably guessed. And some of it was completely bonkers. The lawsuits over the property insurance for Building 1 and Building 2 in particular, which is what I'm going to be talking about today. So buckle in for a truly wild ride. I learned a ton, and I think you will too. Before we get into the details of the dispute, let's talk about the history of the World Trade Center and how we even got here. When people talk about the World Trade Center, they're usually talking about the Twin Towers, Building 1 and Building 2. But the World Trade Center is actually a larger complex of buildings than that. Much of the World Trade Center complex, including Building 1 and Building 2, was designed by two architects, Minuro Yamasaki and Emery Roth, and built in 1973 on 16 acres of land owned by the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. That original complex had seven buildings, buildings one through seven. The Twin Towers were the largest, and the other five buildings consisted of a hotel, a government building, and three office buildings. There was also an underground shopping center and a transportation hub for commuter rail and a subway system. The complex was massive and served an amazing number of people every day, workers, customers, tourists. As you can imagine, this was a big, complicated setup to own and maintain. And because it was owned by the Port Authority, I'm just going to refer to the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey as the Port Authority going forward, it didn't pay any property taxes. The Port Authority did have to make some annual payments to the city in lieu of property taxes, but it was nothing like the revenue that it would have received otherwise. As a result, New York, both the city and the state, often brought up the idea of selling the site to raise funds almost as soon as the World Trade Center complex was built. But from what I've read, the Port Authority didn't want to let go. They liked the cachet of owning the property, and based on my very general understanding of New York politics, they also liked not doing what the mayor and the governor wanted them to do. It took almost 30 years for the political wrangling on this idea to settle on a decision. Selling the World Trade Center complex would have been financially rewarding, but it was messy, and there were clear political downsides to selling it off completely. The Port Authority decided instead to sell a 99-year lease on some of the buildings, specifically buildings 1, 2, 4, and 5, and a chunk of the retail space. Selling a lease meant that the Port Authority still owned the property and could still avoid paying property taxes, but they could also bring in revenue from the sale of the lease. They announced their intentions to sell the lease in the late 1990s and waited to see who took the bait. In the early months of the year 2000, the Port Authority started putting out more formal feelers to real estate companies who might be interested in bidding on the 99-year lease. By the time the bids on the lease were due, September 1st, 2000, only six companies had decided to participate. The winning bid was put forward by a real estate company called Vornado Realty Trust, who bid $3.25 billion, that's billion with a B, for the rights to the lease. That number was significantly higher than any other builder. It wasn't even close. 
The problem was, while Vornado wanted the lease, they simply could not agree on the terms. The Port Authority and Vornado went back and forth for almost five months, and several times in that period it seemed like the deal was off, then on, then off again. Eventually, Vornado wanted to change the lease terms to 39 years, rather than the proposed 99-year lease, and the Port Authority walked away. This move meant that the second highest bidder, Silverstein Properties, was suddenly in the running with the revised bid of $3.22 billion, higher than their initial bid, but still lower than the Vornado bid. The negotiations, from all accounts, weren't any less contentious than the initial discussions with Vornado. At one point, the Port Authority was ready to walk away, but eventually they were able to come to terms. In July 2001, the final paperwork was signed, and Silverstein Properties took lease ownership of the Twin Towers and the two smaller office buildings, along with a significant amount of retail property. Silverstein Properties was owned by a man named Larry Silverstein. Unlike a certain well-known New York real estate developer who recently held presidential office, Larry Silverstein seemed pretty satisfied with running a huge real estate operation under the radar. He's a character, to be sure. Despite that, a graduate of NYU and Brooklyn Law School, he certainly didn't have a problem arguing with people when he believed he was right. I've linked a couple of articles in my show notes about him, but if you're interested in learning more, I would tell you that searching for Larry Silverstein information on Google produces a truly staggering number of viciously anti-Semitic 9-11 conspiracy websites. So you can thank me for slogging through all that garbage to find a couple of articles from reputable sources. Silverstein had started buying real estate in New York with his father and brother-in-law in in the late 1950s, and by the time he took over the World Trade Center lease, his father had passed away and his brother-in-law had left the business, leaving Larry with a tremendous portfolio of buildings all over New York City. And he had history with the World Trade Center complex, too. He had developed Building 7, an office building on the complex site in the 1980s. For the lease of the four World Trade Center buildings and the retail properties, Silverstein put up $14 million of his own money and assembled a number of investors and lenders to pay for the rest, over $3 billion. To keep things simple, however, I am going to refer to Silverstein Properties LLC as the primary owner of the lease. The rest of the World Trade Center buildings remained with the Port Authority, with the obvious exception of Building 7, which Silverstein already owned. As part of the lease agreement, there were two responsibilities that matter in my discussion today. One, that he had to take out adequate insurance coverage for the properties, and two, that he had the right and obligation to rebuild if any of the buildings were somehow, some way, destroyed. The first thing Silverstein Properties had to put in place, and it had to be put in place effective the first day of the lease, was the insurance program. This would have included many different lines of coverage, but today we're just talking about the property portion. If you remember my discussion about the Titanic's insurance coverage, some of the same issues involved with that insurance program also show up here, even though that was a large ship and this involves four office buildings and retail property. First, you need to decide how much insurance to obtain. What would it cost to rebuild if a building was suddenly destroyed? What if more than one building was destroyed? And what are the chances of that happening? When the Port Authority owned the Twin Towers and the two office buildings and the retail included in the lease, they had a property policy with $1.5 billion in insurance. Maybe this was because they were a type of government entity and therefore felt comfortable insuring the buildings for far less than they were worth, but this was definitely not enough insurance for these four buildings. 
Deciding on an insurance value is a delicate dance of appraisal and estimate and how much risk the owner is willing to take on, or is required to take on, themselves. With something this large, insurance companies would want the insured to take on some of the risk themselves. The investors who helped put up the money to buy the lease wanted at least $2.3 billion in property coverage. But there were also lenders involved. I mean, let's face it, nobody had that much money just sitting around, even very well-off investors. And those lenders wanted more, $3.5 billion in property coverage, to be exact. $3.5 billion in property coverage is complicated. That is a lot of money. Silverstein Properties engaged Willis as their broker. And yes, that's the same broker, well, at least the same brokerage company, who years before had helped find insurance for the Titanic. Willis, for its part, had a slightly different idea of the amount of insurance that these four buildings and retail needed. Their number was more like $5 billion. But it appears they weren't able to convince Silverstein Properties to change their numbers. And frankly, Willis and Silverstein didn't have a lot of time. Silverstein and the Port Authority seemed to have come to terms on the lease at the end of April, and the policy needed to be effective mid-July. That's only a few months to insure a property with not only huge financial value, but with historic value, not to mention a property that had been hit with large losses, including terrorism, in the past. In 1973, Building 1 had had a pretty significant fire that spread over about five floors of the building. Part of the reason it wasn't worse was because of a certain asbestos fireproofing that had been sprayed in the building. But at the time, that building didn't even have any kind of a sprinkler system. In fact, none of them did, something that was remedied later because of this fire. And then, of course, in 1993, in February, a rented truck full of explosives detonated in the below-ground parking garage of Building 1, killing six people, injuring more than a 1,000 others, and resulting in serious structural damage to the building. For underwriters, knowing that this property was high-profile and potentially high-risk meant that not every insurance carrier would want to participate in the insurance program. Or if they did it might mean that the price they would want to insure it for would be just too high to compete. On the other hand, there are definitely underwriters and insurance companies that would see insuring a high-profile building as a win for their organization, even at a lower price than they would normally want to charge. What I can pretty confidently say is that due to the size of the risk, the high profile of the risk, and the prior losses, no underwriter looking at this insurance submission would have done this work alone. My guess is that in order to participate in the insurance on this risk, very high-level company approvals would have been needed. This means that the underwriter's manager and probably that manager's manager and maybe even the head of the company would have signed off on what was quoted to Silverstein Properties. And frankly, while I'm not surprised at the gigantic mess that this entire insurance program became, I'm disappointed that so many people made a hash of it. In a perfect world... This is how an insurance program should go. First, the broker puts together a clean, clearly written submission, which includes all the information an underwriter would need. The broker understands the standard property forms that are used by all the carriers and accepts them as is. The underwriter, who is considering writing the first layer, the primary layer, receives the submission with plenty of time to work on the program, say, at least 90 days, For something large and complicated, it could even be six months or more. They don't need to ask any questions because the submission is complete and the risk makes sense. They research the risk, review the forms, and price out what would be appropriate, 
using the standard forms and endorsements and what limits they would want to offer. They put together a clear, complete quote and send it to the broker. In the meantime, because the broker wants to put together a tower of limits above the primary, the broker has also sent out the submission to those insurance companies who want to quote the additional primary limits. Those underwriters consider what limits they would want to provide and where in the property tower they would like to sit. Do they want to be directly above the primary and put out a lower limit for more premium but more risk? Or do they want to sit up higher in the tower and maybe put up more limit? Because in theory, at that attachment, there is less risk. They make some initial quotes, they maybe do some initial pricing, but they're waiting to see how that primary quote shakes out. With plenty of time before the policy needs to be effective, the primary quote now received by the broker is communicated to the underwriters who would be writing above the primary layer. Much of the pricing of excess limits is based on the pricing coverage and limits of the primary layer, so an excess underwriter often has to wait and see what the primary layer is doing. And each excess layer wants to see all the layers quoted beneath them. Again, it does affect how the pricing shakes out. In a perfect world, the excess layers all agree to follow the policy wording of the primary layer. Once that primary layer is decided on and the coverage is bound, as they say, the broker tells the primary underwriter to bind coverage effective on a particular date, and the primary insurance carrier issues what we call a binder. This is a document that states that coverage is bound and the pricing terms and conditions. Often it will have the policy forms and endorsements attached, but the final policy has not yet been issued. The binder is not an insurance policy, but it is a contract, albeit a temporary one. That binder, once received by the broker, is then sent with an email to the insurance company who has been chosen as the first excess layer with a request to bind that layer. The process repeats itself with each layer receiving information, a copy of the underlying binders, and a bind request after the layer below is bound. Within 30 days, every insurance carrier on the program has issued a final policy. The policies are sent to the broker, and the broker makes sure that every excess layer receives copies of the policies that are in place below it. Everyone is happy, and every file is complete. I will allow you a moment if you are listening and in the insurance industry, to laugh uproariously at this fairy tale. It never happens this way. It certainly didn't for this program. What happens in real life is often extremely messy. And when you have a huge tower and a short timeline and a broker who wants to prove that they are an important part of the process, it can become a disaster. In the case of the Silverstein Properties Tower, there was no way that they were even going to get one single primary carrier to provide the primary layer. Keep in mind, with a tower of this size, you would never ask a primary carrier to put up just a million dollars in limits. In order to fill out the entire tower, you need insurance companies to take bigger chunks than that, or it would take forever. And they didn't have that kind of time. Frankly, even putting up, say, 10 million in limits for a primary carrier would be a little tricky here. There's a lot of risk at that layer, so maybe you would want more than one carrier to participate on that primary layer. That gets us into something we call quota share. This means that, for example, if the primary policy limit is 10 million, you might have several insurance companies that take a percentage of that 10 million for a certain percentage of the premium quota sharing the risk. In the case of the Silverstein Properties policy, five additional carriers agreed to split up the first 10 million in risk. Travelers was considered the lead on the primary, 
meaning that the terms and conditions of their policy applied to the rest of the carriers on the quota share. All the other primary insurance companies agreed to support those terms and conditions. Then this tower got a lot more complicated, as they started to add limits above that $10 million. Swiss Re, who will figure prominently in my discussion today because of this decision, didn't want to take on an entire layer by themselves, but they wanted to participate in every single layer above the primary, up to that $3.5 billion total limit. So they decided to take 22% of every single layer above $10 million. Lloyd's wanted to participate, but only above the $1 billion layer. And by the time the entire tower was completed, there were 12 different layers and more than 30 insurers. Even if everything had been simple and clear as it was in our fantasy fairyland, can you imagine trying to keep all that straight? To Willis's credit, they were able to get the limits they needed, which wasn't a sure thing. In the case of the timeline, obviously, this many carriers participating on a complicated insurance program poses some issues. I don't have any indication that Willis provided anything but a complete and quick submission to insurers, except maybe the court testimony that would follow, but I do have my 20 years of insurance experience, and in my experience, it's really, really rare to get a submission that doesn't require a lot of parsing and questions and research and, frankly, arguing when something is this big. A quick turnaround submission like this, I mean, you're absolutely more prone to missing or incorrect information. And you're never working on one thing at a time. I mean, any underwriter is working on many different submissions at any given time. And keep in mind, this was 2001. Yes, computers were used by everyone, but I well remember we worked off paper files most of the time. We still received faxed or even mailed in submissions. You can probably imagine, too, that once everything was bound, getting policies issued probably took some time, and that was true. In fact, while I would argue that today getting policies issued within 30 days is still very hit or miss, back then it was very atypical. Things were just looser. Lloyd's in particular had a reputation for being very, very slow about things, but even the U.S. carriers were pretty pokey about getting things out the door. 9-11, and in particular this case, changed that for the industry. So if the policies were bound mid-July, that meant there were about 45 work days between the day the policies were bound and 9-11. You think that might be a problem? You'd be right. Only one policy had been issued on this program as of 9-11. Instead, Willis and Silverstein had binders, binders that were not complete, binders that had conditions, which meant that those conditions needed to be resolved before the policy was even considered to be truly bound. And Willis introduced a new wrinkle into what was already a complicated process, the Willis Property Form, a.k.a. the Will Prop Form. I've talked about how most policy forms are pretty standard. These forms have been developed over many years and are shaped by litigation, so the wording has been proved in court. And you may also remember how wording that isn't proven in court can be a problem, because you don't know how the court might actually interpret what you think is clear and concise, or deliberately ambiguous, depending on your goal. But over the years, various insurance brokers have tried to introduce their own proprietary policy forms. These forms serve a couple of purposes for the broker. They prove to the client the value that that particular broker brings to the table. It is a great way to distinguish yourself to the client that doesn't require you to undercut the other potential brokers with your fee structure. And assuming that the form is used in the insurance program, 
it also keeps the client from moving to another broker because the form is proprietary to that specific broker and can't be used with any other broker. So if you want to change brokers, that means at renewal, all the forms would need to be changed too. And that is a hassle and may not be in the best interests of the client either. And obviously, an insurance contract that the broker writes will always be more favorable to their client than to the insurance company. Typically, insurance companies don't like these forms, no surprise. There's usually a lot of arguing and lawyer wrangling around them. Sometimes an insurance company will actually walk away from the risk rather than take a chance using a broker form. Sometimes broker forms do make sense to use. In the case of this insurance program, it seemed like most of the carriers who participated used forms that were not particularly standard, which meant that the terms and conditions differed from layer to layer. This isn't ideal for obvious reasons. If something's excluded in one layer and not excluded in another layer, it makes for a mess in the event of a claim. If the definitions of important words differ from policy to policy, that can also make a big mess. So in theory, having all the carriers on the same form definitely simplifies things. For Willis, the broker form did something specific that the client was asking for and that Willis believed would be a significant value add to the program. The property program was likely going to have a per-loss deductible, which meant that Silverstein Properties would have to pay out money on every loss, probably a lot of money. If there was a deductible on this policy in the end, I don't know. If there had been, it might have been in the millions of dollars. The way deductibles are typically structured in property policies, if more than one building on the policy was damaged, Silverstein might have been responsible for more than one deductible, which could get very expensive for his organization. So, to avoid this possibility, Willis changed the definition of occurrence from the standard property definition to one that they thought worked better and eliminated multiple deductibles. If sirens and red flashing lights aren't going off in your brain right now, you have not been listening to my podcast. Don't worry, I'll explain it. And if you have been listening to my podcast, you might be jumping up and down saying, Danger, Will Robinson, danger! Willis did manage to get all the policies in the tower bound as of mid-July 2001. But as I said, only one carrier, Allianz, managed to get a policy issued and sent to Willis and the insured as of 9-11. In the weeks running up to 9-11, there was still a lot of behind-the-scenes wrangling going on, and while binders had been issued, these binders had a lot of contingencies that needed to be resolved before final policies were bound and issued. And then they ran out of time. I'm sure every one of those people who worked on the Silverstein Properties Tower was not only horrified by what they were seeing that day in New York City, but horrified by what they were about to have to deal with when they got back to the office, especially when they realized just how much of the program was unfinished and unresolved. It's not even remotely a surprise that it got litigious very, very quickly. For Silverstein Properties, they had lost four people in the attack. Their offices were in Building 1. Larry Silverstein was supposed to have been there that day, but he had a doctor's appointment in the morning. Two of his adult children also worked in the business, but were running late to work that day. On a personal level, it was devastating, but there was a serious financial commitment, too. He had a lot of bills to pay on the lease, over $100 million a year, and clearly he wasn't going to be seeing any income from the properties for a very long time, if ever. He had maybe four months' worth of funds in reserve, a 99-year commitment to the property, the expectation, depending on how you read the lease contract, to rebuild, 
and he knew that he needed that money from the insurance claim to stay afloat. And of course, that's why you take out an insurance policy, to pay claims in the event of a loss. Silverstein also knew that the 1993 bombing of Building 1 was still in active litigation as of 2001, and he worried, probably quite rightly, that his claim would be the same. They weren't going to be arguing about whether or not there was a loss, but boy, were they going to argue about everything else. His initial actions, though, definitely were more aggressive than maybe was necessary. He hired a high-profile public relations company and also brought on a government lobbyist with ties to the Bush administration, for starters. Congress clearly knew that 9-11 was about to create a deluge of insurance claims because less than two weeks later, they came out and said that any legal claims related to 9-11 would need to be filed in New York. This was, on the one hand, a really smart move to ensure there wasn't a lot of venue shopping for lawyers trying to find the most sympathetic judge or jury for their claim. And on the other hand, it also meant that everyone had to abide by New York law, which is uh, particular and can be challenging to navigate. However, two of the insurance companies on the tower, XL Capital and ACE, had London arbitration clauses in their policies, meaning that according to the terms of the policies they were bound to from the issued binder, any disputes had to be heard via arbitration in London. Silverstein would challenge this. And then Silverstein went out and told the press publicly that he intended to make two insurance claims, one for Building 1 and one for Building 2. Based on his interpretation of the insurance policy, this would result in a total claims payout of seven billion, money he would use to rebuild. If you've been paying attention, this is twice the 3.5 billion limit of the insurance policies that were in place. Since the insurance program was written with no aggregate, this meant that in theory, the insurance companies could pay out multiple limits on the policy if there were multiple separate occurrences. No one ever thought that more than one building would be a total loss, so putting an aggregate, which would have capped the total amount that could be paid out on the policy, wasn't even on the table when the program was created. Swiss Re, who, as you may remember, had taken 22% of every layer above $10 million, meaning they were on the hook for close to $775 million on one claim, or God forbid, almost $1.6 billion if Silverstein was successful in filing two separate claims, immediately filed suit, asking a judge to rule that the two planes that crashed into the Twin Towers was one occurrence and not two. Not surprisingly, Silverstein immediately countersued, and then he sued XL Capital and ACE about the London arbitration provision. You're probably getting the sense that this is setting up to be contentious. You'd be right. While everyone waited for these initial legal issues to be resolved, Swiss Re and the rest of the insurance carriers were trying to figure out just what exactly they had insured and how. The first problem was obvious. No policies except for the Allianz policy had been issued, and the binders themselves were in disarray. And this was a particular problem here because while Willis had ostensibly put forth the will prop form as the policy form to be used, it hadn't been agreed to in some instances. And even worse, in some cases, Willis had suggested several different forms to certain insurance companies, not just the will prop form. What form Willis asked for and when and who knew and who agreed or not and how all this was documented would become a major issue. 
It appears from the testimony in the various court cases that in the beginning, Willis wanted the will prop wording on everything, including the primary. I wasn't able to locate a complete copy of the will prop policy, but from my perspective, keeping in mind I am mainly a liability underwriter and not a property underwriter, this is odd. Most broker wording forms aren't really meant for a primary policy and are really used mostly on excess layers. This is usually because the broker form doesn't include as much detail as a primary insurance policy does. It appears that travelers immediately pushed back on using the will prop form and insisted on using their own policy form. We know that travelers didn't discuss or agree to changing their definition of occurrence, which is the most important thing to remember here. Up until the actual date that the insurance had to be in place, the very first day of the lease, it appears that Willis was doing everything they could to replace travelers as the primary, to find another insurance company to lead the primary layer and not use their wording at all. This is pretty odd given what happened to Willis as they started to send out binder requests to various insurance companies. From all accounts, the form that was initially sent by Willis to all the potential insurance companies with the insurance submission was Willprop. So the expectation is that various insurance companies would have reviewed the form, checked to see if the wording met their needs and that it was appropriate for the risk, before providing a quote for insurance to Willis based on that form. Apparently, in some cases, quotes were provided to Willis and the underwriters in question did not review the form. Honestly, I'm not sure why, and these underwriters really blew it. How do you even know what you're agreeing to if you don't read the actual form that you're agreeing to? And knowing that this risk was high profile and that likely people in positions above the individual underwriter also had to sign off, how did this even happen? And it wasn't just one company, it was several companies. And Lloyd's. Either way, at some point within Willis, there was some internal discussion of dumping the will prop form and replacing it with the traveler's form, not just for the primary, but for all the excess policies. Keeping in mind, they were also actively trying to find another carrier to lead the primary because they thought the traveler's wording was, quote, a pain. But this idea doesn't seem to have been communicated in writing to the individual insurance companies prior to Willis requesting to bind coverage. When Willis started sending out bind requests, telling the insurance companies to bind coverage, they also told some of the insurance companies to use the traveler's form instead of the will prop form. To me, this would imply that at some point Willis had expressed to the various insurance companies that they might use the traveler's wording, but the court documents don't really have much proof that this was the case. This is kind of like buying a car, and then when you agree on the price and you're ready to sign off on the deal, the dealer says, well, in fact, instead of that SUV you're supposed to be getting, here's a really nice pontoon boat. No implication to the relative value of pontoon boats versus SUVs versus Willprop versus travelers. Seriously, they're just two totally different things. And not everyone at Willis appeared to be on the same page with this either. While the U.S. Willis broker told the London Willis broker about the change, the Willis broker in London never bothered to tell any of the Lloyds underwriters he was working with about it. Now, if you aren't in the industry, you might say, well... It takes two to agree to a contract, so if Willis was trying to change the terms and sign the contract, all the insurance companies had to do was say no and refuse to sign. And that's true, that was an option, but that's not what happened. Instead, the insurance companies would agree to sign the original contract without the changes. And in some cases, like the case of Swiss Re, you issue a binder with a laundry list of conditions that have to be met before the contract is officially agreed to. 
This is a way of binding coverage so that Silverstein and Willis could meet the terms of the lease, but also not binding coverage if you get my drift and protecting the insurance company. No one looking at that binder would have thought that the negotiations about the policy terms were completed. And some carriers didn't even have a binder to look at. I mean, in the case of travelers, for whatever reason, they never even sent back a signed binder to Willis. Both parties agreed in court that they were actually bound to coverage, but that could have taken a terrible turn if travelers had deliberately not signed the contract entirely, a position they could have tried to take. It appears, too, that even after binding, sort of, the travelers' primary policy, Willis came up with a list of new changes that they wanted to the travelers' policy wording. Why this was not done prior is a mystery to me and another example of how I think this whole process was just very messed up. One interesting thing about that is that of the 76 changes they wanted after binding, not one of them was the word occurrence, the very issue that this entire mess is about. On the stand, the Willis brokers said that they believed that the will prop wording was just a draft or a starting point. The insurers might not have understood that, but that didn't stop Willis from trying to renegotiate the terms of the insurance policies after they were bound. It's not atypical for a broker to want to massage the deal after it's been signed off on and agreed to, but to try to change the policy form entirely, especially to go from your own broker form to another insurance company's form, it's a bit unusual. It's especially unusual to come to an agreement about wording after a loss, as it appears Travelers and Willis did a few days after 9-11. Not surprisingly, after Silverstein announced that he intended to make two claims for two separate occurrences, you can bet every insurance company went through what they had agreed to and what they had not agreed to with a fine-tooth comb. One thing was immediately clear. The definition of occurrence was vastly different between the Travelers form and the will prop form. I've talked about occurrence in prior episodes, but mostly in regards to liability insurance, not property insurance. In liability insurance, the word occurrence and how it's formally defined is practically the backbone of the policy. And it's a word that's been litigated a lot, so it's been tweaked over the years as various court cases have interpreted it. It's not quite the same for the word occurrence in the context of a property policy, which makes sense. An occurrence in a liability policy can cover a lot of ground. For example, who got hurt, and how bad, and why, and how, and how did the insured cause it. In a property policy, the more important terms are things like the covered cause of loss, which define what types of loss, fire, hurricane, but maybe not earthquake, would be covered. The fact that there is a loss is usually pretty obvious. You'll also see something in the policy that takes into account some causes of loss, like, say, a hurricane, last for days. So, for example, on a property policy, you might see something like this. This 72-hour period will constitute a single occurrence. But there is no actual definition of occurrence in the policy, and so they leave that interpretation up to the courts, I guess. I mean, to be honest, you couldn't issue a policy in which every single word was officially defined, though some days I see how the general liability policy could potentially get there. Ugh. Now Willis had this will prop form that they had developed, and one of the things they wanted it to do was eliminate the possibility that their client might be responsible for two deductibles in a situation where two buildings were damaged. This makes sense, but it also had an unintended consequence. In order to eliminate the possibility of two deductibles, 
Willis defined occurrence within the will-prop form. There probably were other ways of addressing this issue, but this is what Willis went with. The will-prop form defined occurrence like this. Occurrence shall mean all losses or damages that are attributable, directly or indirectly, to one cause or to one series of similar causes. All such losses will be added together, and the total amount of such losses will be treated as one occurrence, irrespective of the period of time or area over which such losses occur. So immediately, you can probably already see how this was going to be a problem. One cause or one series of similar causes equals one occurrence, irrespective of the period of time or area over which such losses occur. What makes something one cause? What's a series of similar causes? I should pause and state that while to me it seems obvious how the court came down on this, at the time, legal minds all over the United States weren't so sure. Many of them did publish articles arguing that the plane that hit Building 1 and the plane that hit Building 2 were completely separate and could not be combined into one cause or series of similar causes. In the case of travelers, however, the wording was different. Travelers was using a more standard property policy, and the word occurrence was not defined at all. There was no wording about one cause or a series of similar causes. From a liability standpoint, there is no way that you would ever build a tower with two different definitions of occurrence. I've seen brokers try to do it, but it is a legitimately terrible idea for everyone involved. Personally, I think it was a mistake to try and build a property tower introducing a defined term in some layers that was not defined in other layers. Whatever issues I have with the way that Willis handled this and whether or not they understood what would happen if the primary and excess had different wording as respects occurrence, the court documents suggest that initially Willis did believe that the attack on Building 1 and Building 2 was one occurrence. However, as I mentioned earlier, Silverstein came out publicly a week after 9-11 saying that he considered it two occurrences and expected to make two claims. Internally, Willis got behind this idea quite quickly, something I will come back to later. That started the back-and-forth legal wrangling that resulted in multiple lawsuits, Silverstein against the insurers and the insurers against Silverstein. Initially, Swiss Re led the charge, which makes sense because they were the carrier with the most to lose. Swiss Re wanted the courts to rule immediately that the damage to the World Trade Center was considered one insurance loss. Silverstein wanted the courts to rule that it was two losses. Everybody else just got involved arguing whatever made them look better. As with most legal issues, particularly complicated legal issues, it took almost a year before a judge would weigh in on the initial claims by Silverstein and the insurers on the program. In September 2002, Judge John S. Martin issued a ruling that involved three insurers on the program, Hartford, St. Paul, and Royal Indemnity. All three carriers had listed the will prop form on their binders, but hadn't issued final policies as of 9-11. Judge Martin found that despite some back and forth between the insurers and the broker about which policy form would apply when the policy was issued, that the three carriers had clearly intended to use the will prop form and that, most importantly, based on his reading of the will prop form's definition of occurrence, the 9-11 attack on Building 1 and Building 2 was one occurrence and not two, and therefore the three carriers would not be responsible for paying out their policy limits twice. 
This was good news for the insurers in general, except for the fact that the issue of what policy form each specific insurance company was using was still up in the air in a lot of cases. In addition, if the carrier wasn't using the will prop form, that meant that the court system needed to decide whether or not the definition of occurrence on that specific policy wording that they were using would make 9-11 one occurrence or two. Eventually, it was decided that for the rest of the carriers, there needed to be a two-phase jury trial to settle these issues. The first phase was simply to determine which insurers had agreed to use the will prop form and which had not. For those insurers who did not use the will prop form, phase two would determine, based on the policy wording that those particular policies used, whether or not it was one or two occurrences. It wasn't until February 2004, almost three years after the event, that the phase one trial started. Not surprisingly, if the insurer had any reason to argue that they were bound to that will prop form, they did, knowing that the courts had already ruled that 9-11 was one occurrence on that form. Silverstein Properties argued that most of the insurers were actually bound to the traveler's form, which he, his lawyers, and Willis thought would mean that 9-11 was two occurrences, and therefore allow him to make two claims and receive two payouts of policy limits. You will not be surprised to know that the lawyers involved in this trial on Silverstein's side and on the carrier side were a verifiable who's who of legal prowess. And I was not surprised, but rather tickled by the fact that Lloyd's hired one David Boys to represent their interests in this trial. You might know David Boys from, among other things, a relatively recent defense of Theranos. He was also the lawyer representing a certain Al Gore in the Supreme Court case Bush versus Gore. Overall, the insurance companies had a couple of arguments to make in addition to their issues about forms. One of the major ones was to try and prove that Silverstein and Willis had decided to use the traveler's form after the events of 9-11, as they already knew that the will prop form would likely interpret 9-11 as one occurrence and not two, and they thought that the traveler's form would provide more coverage. Silverstein and his team argued that, yeah, the will prop form was the first form that was suggested, but by the time everything was bound, everyone had seen and agreed to use the traveler's form wording. As I've already discussed, based on a timeline of events I created by parsing together the court testimony, this was not the case. The phase one jury trial was contentious. In fact, at one point, Silverstein was barred by the judge from attending the trial. But several months later, in April of 2004, the jury came back with their verdict. Eight of the 12 insurers in the lawsuit and all of the 20 Lloyd syndicates were found to have intended to use the will prop form, and would therefore be held to that policy wording, meaning they would be responsible for paying out on one occurrence and not two. Three remaining insurers, Zurich, Royal Specialty, and Twin City Fire, were found by the jury to not have agreed to use the will prop form and therefore would need to move on to the Phase two trial. There were seven other insurance companies that would also participate in the Phase two trial that clearly were not using Willprop and therefore had not needed to be part of Phase one, including, not surprisingly, travelers. Swiss Re, however, who was part of the Phase one trial, was not in either category when the verdict was read. I suspect several Swiss Re executives had heart palpitations when they heard this. Luckily for them, several days later, it was determined that Swiss Re had also agreed to use the will prop form and therefore would only have to pay out on one occurrence. Now that the issue of who was on the will prop form was resolved, it was time to decide on the wording of those non-will prop policies and whether or not 9-11 was considered one occurrence or two. 
Travelers, as you know, did not define occurrence. Some carriers in this group defined occurrence as something arising out of an event, but then didn't define event. The second phase of the trial started in October 2004 and apparently was so confusing to jurors that one asked to be removed and the jury asked questions of the judge like, are Swiss Re and Munich Re part of Lloyd's? No, and if they were confused about this, the lawyers were doing a terrible job. And (laughs) what exactly are we doing here anyway? Admittedly, this is a complicated policy wording issue, even for people who are well-versed in insurance policy wording, but it also appears that the lawyers for both sides had lost their minds and were vomiting complicated arguments for each other's benefit and the judges without making a clear case to the actual jury. Maybe everyone just ran out of juice after the phase one trial ended. I don't know. Luckily for me and you, I don't have to read those arguments. After 11 days of deliberation, the jury decided that all the wordings they were asked to examine, including travelers, found that 9-11 would be considered two occurrences. That meant that Larry Silverstein finally had some kind of a win. On those policies, he could make a claim for two limits. Not surprisingly, everyone appealed. Eventually, however, after an unknown and likely immense amount of legal bills on both sides, the claims were settled. The courts had determined, based on all the different lawsuits, that Silverstein was entitled to a claim payment of approximately $4.55 billion for his insurance policy covering the Twin Towers. This was obviously more than the amount the insurance companies thought he was entitled to, the $3.5 billion limit on his policy, but a lot less than he thought he was entitled to. The next step was having everything appraised, which, as you can imagine, was also contentious, but would take too long to discuss here. Silverstein, however, didn't let the resolution of this case stop him from trying to find money in other places. He sued American Airlines and United Airlines for damages due to their planes and their failure to stop the terrorist attacks. Initially, the court dismissed the lawsuits, but eventually Silverstein was able to recover about $90 million from the airlines and their insurers. One entity that Silverstein didn't sue, however, was Willis. And this is... Interesting. Willis, as an insurance broker, carried insurance, specifically insurance that covered errors and emissions due to the services they provided. If they were negligent in their duties or performed inadequate work, then the errors and emissions policy would have covered any claims related to that. Early on, even before the Phase 1 trial started, there were some stirrings that insurance companies wanted to see what Willis's E&O carriers knew about this whole 9-11 policy debacle, especially since Willis hadn't raised the issue of one occurrence or two until after Silverstein told the press he planned to make two separate insurance claims. The insurance companies asked the courts to require Willis to make available anything related to discussions with their E&O carrier. Initially, the judge was going to release the documents, which had been submitted to the courts, but in the end he decided not to. The fact that Silverstein didn't sue Willis, in fact he even used Willis as his broker for the rebuilding process, is interesting. Now I'm just getting into personal speculation. I have no evidence one way or another, but this is a man who felt very strongly about rebuilding after 9-11, and this is a man who aggressively went after entities he thought owed him recompense. And yet, no lawsuit against Willis who probably has a very large errors and omissions policy and definitely appeared to have been making some mistakes in the placement of insurance for these properties. 
I'm not a conspiracy theorist, though the fact that the judge kept the E&O documentation sealed. My best guess is that Willis and the E&O carrier did pay out some money to Silverstein. How much, who knows? But it wouldn't have been a small amount of money. On the other hand, you could also make the argument that since Willis got behind Silverstein and strongly supported his claims against the insurance companies, Silverstein decided not to sue them out of appreciation. But even in that scenario, Willis paying out some E&O money to their client would have helped, too. And it would explain why the judge kept it sealed. Or not. You decide. Silverstein did decide to move some of his insurance to another broker, Aon, in 2005, when he began the process of building what is now the Freedom Tower. But there was no messy break from Willis, as a lot of people had expected after 9-11. With the money that Silverstein had received from the various insurance companies, as well as the money he received from the airlines, he aimed to rebuild. The money he had wouldn't cover the entirety of the rebuilding costs, but he could also access money that Congress had set aside for redevelopment in Lower Manhattan. It wasn't really a done deal that it would be rebuilt or that Silverstein would be the one doing it, but eventually Silverstein and the Port Authority came to an agreement that required Silverstein to cede Building 1, or what the location of Building 1 would become, back to the Port Authority, and he gave up some of his hard-won insurance funds to the Port Authority for redevelopment of that site. The land where Building 7 had been located, a building which was not part of the World Trade Center lease, but was a property Silverstein had initially developed in the 80s and had also collapsed after 9-11, was also given back to the Port Authority. One World Trade Center broke ground in spring 2006. Most of the other buildings have been reconstructed or repaired, and there's now a memorial as well. What will eventually be two World Trade Center is still incomplete. From an insurance versus history perspective, this squeaks by as a win of history over insurance, primarily because the insurance was such a mess. The events of 9-11 and the aftermath of the terror attacks resulted in a lot of changes in the insurance industry in general. As respects the insurance at the World Trade Center buildings, specifically the policies insured for Silverstein properties, the resulting legal cases did prompt additional industry-wide changes. First of all, while insurance companies believed in this idea of contract certainty, they weren't always great about following through before 9-11. Contract certainty is a fancy term, meaning that each party knows exactly what they're agreeing to at the time of entering into insurance contract. Seems like a simple idea, right? But prior to 9-11, there was a lot more laxity and resolving issues before the effective date of a policy and even for months afterwards, as brokers and insurers argued over wording and coverage. It still exists today. To be sure, if the insurance program is complicated enough, there can be some amount of post-bind haggling but it's improved significantly. Another issue was speeding up the issuance of actual physical policies rather than relying on binders for months and months after the policy was effective. If actual policies had been issued before 9-11 on this insurance program, a lot of this litigation would have been avoided. Generally, the industry standard now is that policies are issued within 30 days. This is helped along by technology too, which is great. In 2001, I remember well, every document had to be individually typed. The quote, the binder, and the policy were all separate documents in separate computer programs. These days, many carriers have a computer system where everything flows out of the same place. Once you've typed your quote with the policy forms automatically attached, all you have to do is hit a button to create a binder and a policy. 
You would think that maybe the events of 9-11 would have convinced brokers not to create and use their own forms, rather to rely on more standard wording, but that would not be the case. Broker forms are still around and still as challenging as ever. A huge thanks to all of you for listening in. When I started this podcast, it was with the idea that I would do six episodes. This is episode six, and already I see there are far more things I could explore. I've not always been great about releasing episodes on a monthly basis. This is something which I intend to fix going forward. For now, this is the end of season one of Insurance versus History. I'm going to take a few months to dig into some major research topics, slavery, gambling, eugenics, even Elliot Spitzer. And I'll be back on a monthly schedule starting September 15th for season two. I hope to see you then. But before you go, could you take a minute and rate me on Apple iTunes? It really, really helps other people find the podcast. And if you like the podcast, share it with a friend. If you have comments or questions, hit me up at insurancevshistory at gmail.com. A huge thanks to my editor and talented voiceover actor, Zach Stinnett. You should hire him. His information, along with links and book suggestions about this topic in case you're interested in learning more, can be found in my show notes at insuranceversehistory.libson.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you learned something.